This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. I think it's important for warriors to share their stories so that everybody knows what we're going through as America's fighting force. We're all in this together. And with that, welcome, Anthony Villarreal. How are you? I'm doing pretty good enjoying this uh, inside weather. <laughs> yes, I hear you. Yeah, in Texas, it's got to be a little warm there, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I think it's supposed to get to 105 today. So uh, That sounds miserable. Uh, I'm in Utah, so it's about 90, but that's we're yeah. having a heat wave come through this week, and we should get up to 100. But we don't yeah, have that humidity like nice. you do, right? You have the humidity. Yeah, we have the humidity. Ugh, that just adds a whole so, nother layer of misery on it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, let's get started with your story. Would you mind sharing with us a little bit of your background uh, growing up, what, what your family was like, what kind of military, if any, background you had in the family? Um, growing up, I, I was born in Lubbock, Texas uh, in 1986, and I had a lot of family that was in the military, mostly Army, some Air Force, um, maybe one or two in the Navy. Uh, not really any relatives in the Marines. So that's uh, what kind of caught my eye, wondering why nobody joined the Marines. I just thought um, growing up, the Army was always the best for some reason, just because of the fact that I had a lot of family members uh, in the Army when they went, when they were growing up. And uh, uh, just typical football sports kid growing up in the Panhandle of Texas uh, in a little city called Lubbock, Texas. So, you know, up there in just in Texas in general, football's life, sports life. So that's basically what I grew up doing was playing sports and doing everything outside. So uh, just grew up playing sports again, like I said, and uh, that was about it, really. Growing up, were you interested in joining the military or when did you have that thought, huh, I think I want to join the military. And on top of that, I'm not going to do the way everybody else in my family has done it. I'm going to join the Marines. Uh, that was one of my choices growing up, uh, seeing if I was going to join the military. I was looking at, obviously, uh, growing pro, pro in professional football. Uh, that was my first goal. Uh, I was determined to get that far. So I focused mainly on sports growing up. And the military was kind of like my background, a little back burner idea in the back uh, career. Not a lot of interest. Uh, growing up, because obviously I was up and down doing football stuff, sport thing, sports in general, and you know that kind of took up most of my my time. I have to ask: Is Dallas Cowboys your team then? Yes, I I am a diehard Dallas Cowboys fan. Okay, ever since my husband, my husband is like even growing up in Utah. For some reason, Dallas was his team. So we were born in 1970. I'm a little bit older than you, Anthony. <laughs> and he, it's like the glory days of the Dallas Cowboys. What's really exciting for us is one of the items on his bucket list is to go see Dallas play. And we're actually doing that. We're going to go watch them play the 49ers in October. So he is really looking Ooh. forward to that. That's going to be a good game. That's always a good game, the 49ers and Cowboys. Since, yeah. You know, they've so, had a big rivalry for so long. So, Did you have the build to be a professional football player? Uh, I was kind of short. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm 5'8 right now. So okay. they, they really don't see. And I was a lineman. So 5'8 okay. lineman, you know, they really don't uh, recruit those type of people, uh, type of guys a lot. But uh, uh, I, I tried to build more muscle than my height because I knew obviously I wasn't going to get uh, tall. So I just tried to work out with as much muscle, like, as much muscle as I could to be powerful on the line. Uh, my main position was a center. So main thing is got to get the ball to the quarterback. Yeah. So I found that pretty easy. And the secondary second thing was to be able to block. So um, it was fun. I learned a lot. 
playing that position and then you know whatever other position I can get on and play I I play to the best of my ability you have to push some big guys around as center too don't you oh yeah yeah you do but the main uh, good thing about center is that a lot of guys don't really try to come after you you usually have two pretty big guards to your left and your right that kind of take care of them for you or give them that little shove to where you're able to uh, get them in the blocking position to block them better so when did you decide that maybe you better go with your backup plan? <laughs> um, I'm going to have to say the choice to join the military was when uh, 9-11 happened, September 11th. I hear that uh, a lot. It's kind of solidified my my mind in thinking, okay, this is, uh, this is a time that I'm needed. The country's calling. I need to run to the nearest recruiting station and sign up. Just watching everything unfold on the news while I was in class, um, I just couldn't believe it. I've never seen, I mean, I I grew up in a bad part of town, uh, a lot of drugs and gangs and stuff like that, but I've never seen uh, anything of that magnitude happen in my lifetime up until then. Now, everybody just got thrown in a loop around that time when nothing was really going on. And all of a sudden we have this, huge event, big airplanes flying into the Twin Towers. And you have no idea what to think at that moment. You just uh, waiting to see what's going to happen next. And at that, when, when I saw it, I was just, I knew it was, I needed to make the call and, uh, you know, help find the guys that did this. So. And how old were you at that time? I believe I was 16, 17 years old. I was, no, I was a sophomore, I believe. Sophomore or junior when uh, September 11th happened. What do you remember um, most about that day? Just the principal coming over the loudspeaker and telling everybody to get to their assigned classrooms as fast as they could. And um, hearing all, hearing him tell the teachers, I need y'all to turn on the, your televisions and turn to the news station. Uh, something big is happening. Something horrible is going on. I need everybody to stay put and watch what was unfolding. And I think we sat in our classrooms for the next two, three class periods, watching everything going on in New York. It was just so quiet. You know, it was just that eerie silence of everybody watching one thing and being in disbelief on what was going on. That's a lot for an adult to take in. For a teenager, that is a lot to take in. Yes, and I, I just... Like I said, I couldn't believe what was happening. Just seeing, even seeing the second one, because uh, we weren't able to see the first one. I guess we turned it on late, but just seeing that second one and hearing the news reporters say, uh, telling everybody, here, uh, here comes another one. It looks like it's going to directly hit. And then just seeing the explosion after the plane hit the second tower, it's it, just mind-blowing. And as a 16 or 17-year-old boy, because at that age, you're still a boy, your mind is made up. I'm joining the military. I'm going to help protect my country. Yeah, yeah uh, I grew up a very protective person. Like I said, obviously, with me being on the the football kind of accounted into me being protective again with everybody. Um, you know, I had to protect the quarterback, the running back, things like that. And for some reason, when I saw that happen, uh, thinking about joining the military after that happens, like, yeah, the, we need more protection in this world. We need people to stand up and put their lives on the line to protect people who aren't, aren't able to protect themselves. And for some reason, I don't know why that ran through my mind and uh, that kind of solidified my choice to, all right, after after I graduate or whenever I can, since possible, I want to join the military and go over and uh, you know help combat these insurgents. When did you join the military? When did you see a recruiter? Was it before or after high school? Or I should say during high school, because I've talked to a few who like between their junior and senior year, which I didn't even know was possible, they joined and went to boot camp or what have you, depending on what service they were in. I joined before, but the way they were doing it at the moment, I don't know if it's been a rule or something, but uh, I guess I was still young, too young to to graduate or to go to boot camp during the summer. Um, I don't remember them asking me if they did. I was like, no, I want to hang out before I leave. But I joined uh, 
I signed a, I signed a dotted line and then I went to actual boot camp after I graduated. How did your parents feel about you joining? Uh, they were skeptical. Obviously, like any parent seeing their young boy going off to war, it's not an ideal situation that they want to put themselves in. Uh, they really didn't want to see me go. They asked me and asked me and asked me, you know, are you sure? Are you sure you want to wait? Are you sure you want to go? Uh, maybe you should wait a little while. And like, I kept telling them, yes, I want to go. It's something that uh, I, I believe I needed to do. I can't uh, imagine myself doing anything else right now. So take us through your journey of joining the military and your first deployment. So uh, I was, I did my boot camp at MCRD San Diego in California. Did three months there. Uh, after boot camp, they send you to your specialized school, which was a school of infantry for me since I was a, a 0311 or 0311. I was an infantryman, basic infantry, grunt, uh, marine. After my month there, I believe, uh, I was sent off to my first duty station, which was in 29 Palms, California, where I served with 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, uh, 1st Marine Division with Golf Company. Um, I was maybe there for about three months, I want to say, before I was actually pushed out to my first um, deployment in Fallujah, Iraq. Uh, was there for seven months, and the experience there was just undescribable. You know, being in one of the big, one of the cities that had the initial push through with the battalion before us, and then being there afterwards, you know, in such a historic city in in our history, as far as the military, um, being there at 19 years old uh, is indescribable. Um, and especially being overseas, never leaving the state of Texas since I was since going to boot camp, and then never leaving the United States going over. It's you know it. It's hard to describe. You just in so many, you're on so many levels of trying to figure out what is going on that you know you kind of lose your lose your uh, train of thought and just try to be in the moment. It must have been surreal for this young kid, like you said, 18, 19 years old, and you're going to Iraq, which is so different from the United States. That must have just, for lack of a better term, <laughs> blow blow your mind away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, in a way, it, I, I thought of it to be kind of cool to be able to go uh, overseas and see different a different type of culture, how they live, what kind of people they are, you know, and also at the same time being scared because you those same people uh, around you are the ones trying to kill you, and you have no idea who that who they are. One of those things where you're just really scared to be in a certain place. You were there for seven months. What were your du- what were your duties there? Uh, my duties uh, when I was first deployed, I was basically going around uh, showing the presence of military in the city, trying to keep the insurgents from coming back in and make uh, taking over Pelusia as a stronghold again. Uh, we were picking up high value targets, um, making sure we didn't have anybody causing trouble in in the city. And also, we were tasked out at that time to be security for their the polling sites for their first ever um, election. And so, we were part of history in that at that time when I was first deployed, uh, being able to see the Iraqis vote for their first time in a long time, uh, I think ever, and being security for those polling sites so they can elect their officials and. Um, just being there for that was exciting. Were IEDs a big problem yet at this point? IEDs were were still a big problem in really? Fallujah, especially okay. in the city where it's easy to disguise real type bombs with anything, you know, with uh, plastic bags, trash. Um, you know, when they cut their meat up, they would throw the their you know scraps on the street and everything like that. So. You know, it's easy to hide something in there when you're just walking by um, on a foot patrol. So uh, I, I, definitely in the, in the city, it's a lot easier to plant and a lot harder to find uh, roadside bombs, IEDs, that sort. Do you remember um, being more afraid of the IEDs or 
more of maybe shots that were being fired at you? Um, I would have to say I was more afraid of the IEDs than people shooting at me, just because of the fact that IEDs are very accurate. You know, you're, it's they don't have to test for wind or movement or anything. When you hit an IED, you hit an IED. Somebody shooting at me, they they have a chance to miss. They have a chance to hit. It all depends on uh, your surroundings. IEDs were more reliable than shooting, in my opinion, uh, the way I thought. So I was more afraid of being in a vehicle or walking and stepping on a landmine or running over IEDs and being shot. Did you have any close calls or lose anyone or know of anybody whose life was lost during that time? Close calls were plentiful. (laughs) There were so many times where our vehicle was hit with IEDs or gunshots. How do you get up the courage to go out again when you know that they're waiting for you and you've already experienced all these IED close calls? How do you get up the courage to go out again? It's just uh, part of the job. Go out there and... You, know, you could possibly find the IED or uh, get shot at and find the guy who's shooting at you to save the next patrol or the next Marines or soldiers or airmen that are coming through to do the same thing. You know, it's it's uh, it's a way of weeding out all the all the insurgents and finding all the all the things on the side of the road, stuff like that. That makes the makes me be able to go out and calm myself down. Like, hey, you know. This is your job. You, know, you wanted this is what you wanted to do. You knew what you were going to get into, so you have to have to do your job. And I really did enjoy my job doing it, things like that. Besides the fact that you know possibly I could get injured or die, just knowing I had my brothers behind me, my other uh, Marines to my left, to my right that I've served with for so many years, been to boot camp and training and things like that. It just made everything feel better and calmer doing. All those patrols, all those raids with them, you know, knowing they got my back, it brings a calmness to doing the job. You're there for seven months. Do you get to go home after that or do you go to right to your next deployment? Uh, yes, we go home for a while until they need us again. But we do get to come back, uh, get a little downtime with family and things like that, transition back into civilian life. And then after we get... Um, decompress and everything is back to training. How long were you back before you went to your next deployment? Trying to remember. When we came back, I think we spent about four or five months back. It might have been longer. It seemed a little longer, but because for some reason, time uh, moved slower when we came back from our deployment. So I would I would probably say four or five months sometime before we actually deployed again. And where did you go? Second time, I de- we went to um i can't remember i just remember the fob names and the area we were at i know we were close to to Malaysia again okay so it's still in iraq not in the city yeah okay still Iraq. okay all right and how long were you on this deployment seven months seven months okay Yeah. each of our deployments were about seven months long so this was um near the city but outside the city so it was a little more remote yeah we were uh, we were tasked to be pushed out outside, uh, a couple of miles outside of Fallujah, around some of the smaller cities, uh, to make sure they were setting up in those smaller cities to uh, push into Fallujah. Okay. You come home, and then is your next deployment Afghanistan? Yes, my, my third and final deployment was Afghanistan. Your third and final deployment. And what are you doing in Afghanistan? Where are you? Uh, we are trying to establish uh, bases uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, from what I remember, it, it may may or may not be right. Uh, they were there was a lot of um, insurgents jumping the border into Afghanistan to, I guess, regroup and being able to make a push again. But I remember there was a big uh, there was a big group in the area or. Where we were at, there was a big group of insurgents that were together doing their own uh, like camp, training each other. And so um, they pushed us out there to combat those insurgents. 
Okay. So before we get to the day of your traumatic injury, are you married at this point? Um, yes. Okay. I when did you get married? I got married August, 2007, I believe. Okay. All right. So you're married. You have a wife. Do you have any children at this point? No. Okay. No, it's All just right. us so let's go to the day of your traumatic injury. And from what I understand, it was the last patrol of your deployment. Is that correct? Yes. It was actually two, two days, a day or two before you're actually going to get picked up to get drove back to the main base there in Afghanistan to be able to fly out back to the States. Of the things that haunt you, which I'm, I know you have to have things that haunt you. Does the fact that it was that close to coming home, does that ever haunt you? It does. Um, I kind of play that day through my head a lot on what I could have done differently. You know, you, you play the scenario over and over and over and you start nitpicking at every little thing that you could have done differently because you were so I was so close to leaving I was so close to getting picked up and take taken back come home to the states and for some reason every chance that I'm alone and in my thoughts I think man what could I have done differently what could I have used extra to you know keep my eyes on the road or could I have done this thing differently and uh it's just you know at the end I have to keep telling myself you know it just happens yeah can control it it's just one of those things can you take us Go back to, to that day, what day it was, and what happened? Um, I couldn't tell you what day it was, because a lot of the days kind of run together uh, with the time change and everything. So I I never really, it was hard for me to keep up with the weekdays. Uh, what year I think it was it? early in the morning, I want to say maybe 10, 9, 10 o'clock in the morning, got to go get supplies uh, to meet up with the uh, combat transportation unit that goes around and delivers all of our supplies, our water, food, mail, things like that. And uh, you know, we were the squad that was on rest. So uh, they called us up. Actually, we were on the quick reaction force. And so they called us up like, okay, we need supplies. We need you to beat up with them and come bring them to the FOB so we can get resupplied. What year was this? 2008. Okay. So, when everything so happened. what happened? How did the, your injuries come about? Um, well, like I said, we were meeting up with this combat transportation unit to come bring back supplies on the way back. Um, we, we never take the same route twice. Usually uh, we try to make it difficult for them to guess what we were, what we were doing or where we we're going. Um, it just so happened on the way back, vehicle ran over a roadside bomb ID or improvised explosive device. Uh, and it hit right under our vehicle, which uh, a lot of veterans out there know that uh, we have a lot of our uh, armor around the vehicle, but it's so hard to put it under because of the weight of the armor. We, it's kind of soft under there. So when the IED hit on the bottom, it just tore straight through the vehicle and injured all of us uh, in the vehicle. Do you remember much from the explosion? I do, for some reason. It's weird. Uh, a lot of people uh, ask me that question if I remember what happened uh, after we got hit, and I, for some reason, I remember it clear as day getting hit. Uh, everything went black, and just remembering it was hard to breathe because of all the diesel being burned from the explosion coming inside the vehicle. Trying to catch my breath, couldn't see anything with all the smoke because it was just really thick black smoke. And my muscle memory training kicked in and uh started reaching for the door handle i couldn't find it was looking and looking and looking finally found it and tried to open the door and it's funny that uh, it happened in this vehicle because the door on the driver's side would always get stuck and so once i found the handle for the door pulled the door pushed it open it it opened on this day it might have been, it might have been because of the the blast obviously knocked around some some of the mechanics uh in the door but when i reached for that uh door handle and pulled open the door opened uh i fell out and once i hit the the hot sand i can feel everything um on my hand trying to crawl out of there uh, it was just burning it felt like sandpaper being rubbed across my arm it was just it was really painful but i knew i had to get out of there get away because it could have it could have gone up again in any moment especially with all the ammo that we had in the back of the truck it 
it's no telling how long it would take for that ammo to cook up and explode. So I remember crawling a couple of feet and then I passed out. And then after that, I woke up to uh, one of the other Marines. Uh, his name's uh, Yabobin, David Yabobin. I woke up to him dragging me out of the way. Uh, he risked his life to go in there uh, with, like I said, rounds cooking off and all the heat from the fire. He went in there, grabbed me, and drug me out to safety away from the vehicle. And again, when he was dragging me away, uh, woke me up was the pain of the sand rubbing against my legs from all the burns and everything. And it was very painful, but I was glad that I was awake. <laughs> and the corpsman came, Navy corpsman from the actual, the guys we were meeting, the combat transportation unit, they had a corpsman on there who came out and he started assessing all of us. Kept begging for water to get something to drink. I was just so thirsty. Just wanted something to drink. And it was so hot, uh, especially there in Afghanistan. Being in the middle of the desert, it was just so hot. So adding all the burns and everything uh, and adding in the burns and everything, it was that was just, it was unbearable heat. And I kept asking for water and the corpsman, uh, Navy doctor was like, no, I can't. I don't know what's going on inside of you. You, know, you could be bleeding on the inside. If I give you water, it'll just escalate the situation. I just remember him grabbing a towel, putting water on it, water on my lips, and then gave me uh, some pain medication to kind of calm me down. And then uh, I passed out again, just laying there in the sand. Maybe a couple more minutes after that, I just remember feeling a big old breeze on my body, just like a huge fan. And I laid there, I was like, oh, this, this feels so good. And as it got closer and closer, I could just hear the, the helicopter's blades turning. And I was like, man, that feels good. Only It could stay there all day. I'll be okay. And so the helicopter landed. They picked us up, put us in the in the helicopter and flew us out. I remember the, the, crew, the crewman in the helicopter asked me if I was okay. If I was awake, stay awake. They're on. They're taking me to base. I'm gonna be okay once I get to the doctor. You know, he'll pick me up and I'll be I'll be okay. That I'm going home. So just relax and hang out until I get back home. And then uh, passed out again. Woke up at the uh, at the surgeon's surgeon's room on base. I don't know what it's called. The emergency room. And uh, woke up. Doctor was talking to me. The surgeon was talking to me, asking me how I was doing. If I was okay, what hurts, things like that. And I was like, what's going on? Where am I at? And he's like, you're, you know, I'm the surgeon. I'm here to uh, take care of you. We're going to give you some medication to calm you down. And I'm going to fix you up and I'm going to send you home. All right, I'm, I got you. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to go home. And he gave me um, the anesthesia. And then I was out for a little while. Then I woke up again inside the helo, transporting me uh, back to Texas. And uh, <laughs> the the guy in the airplane was talking and I'm like, and <laughs> I like to tell people this part. Cause I don't know if a lot of guys can, uh, that have been injured can uh, tie themselves into with what I said, but I asked the guy, I was like, Hey, am, am, am I okay? And he was like, yeah, you're fine. You're, we're, I know we're what you're going to say. Home. Are you okay? Uh, yeah, you're fine. I'm like, no, you're not understanding me. I, am I okay? He's like, I don't understand. I'm like, am I okay down there? He's like, yeah, you're you have both your legs, you're fine. Like, no, <laughs> am, am I good down there? You know, as a man, am I good down there? He's like, what do you? I don't get it. I was like, am I, am I, am I a full man? He's like, yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, no, you're fine. But you know, I, if you don't like it, I can cut it off. And I was like, no, 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 don't do that. No, I just that's all I wanted to know. And then I uh, passed out again uh, from the medication. And then three months later, woke up at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. Oh, my gosh. Do you know what? You are not the first person to tell me a story similar to that. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's really important to you, man. So, yeah, there's about a half oh, a dozen yeah. others that have said that to me. I don't, and I don't know why I didn't ask if uh, we were where we were at. You know, where, am I still in country? That was the first thing for some reason Popped in my head. So. <laughs> Back to your the day that it happened. Did you at any point realize you were on fire? 
No, actually, I thought um, when I got injured, I thought I was just uh, trying to grasp for air. I didn't really? realize I was hurt at all. I just knew I couldn't breathe because the smoke was so heavy with the diesel gas. And so I was just in my mind, I was like, we got to get out of here. We got to hurry up and get out of here. You can't breathe. You're not going to suffocate. You need to get out. So that was the only thing running through my mind at that moment. So you were in Texas and you woke up three months later. They put you in a medically induced coma, correct? Yes. Okay. I have to ask this, especially since you know Shiloh. Mm -hmm. Do you remember anything from your coma? Because Shiloh does. And he will tell you that it was the scariest place he had ever been in. It was like a nightmare. He remembers being in his coma. I don't remember being in my coma, but I do remember this long, vivid dream I had. It didn't seem like it was like three months long, but it seemed like the longest dream. Actually, no, I'll take that back. It seemed just like a regular dream to me. Like I fell asleep and was just dreaming. And it was uh, it was almost kind of like a nightmarish dream to where, what is that movie called? Um, it was kind of like, I don't know if you've seen... Pee Wee's Big Adventure, where they put the bicycle together. Uh huh. I I felt like I was the bicycle, and the nurses and doctors were around me. You know, they looked like clowns, and they were putting me back together. And then uh, once they saw they didn't like the way I was put together, they took me apart again, and then tried to re reassemble me again. And that was just a recurring dream that I kept having. And so you know, it was. Um, going like that for the long time that I had the dream, apparently that I was in a coma. And when I woke up, I just couldn't believe that was the dream I was having. So how shocked were you waking up, realizing that you had been asleep for three months? Uh, I couldn't believe it. When I woke up, I looked around, I was like, wait, this isn't, this isn't where I was just at. Am I really hurt? Or am I just, did I take a really long nap? Felt real rested. So I thought maybe... I had, I was having a dream of me being hurt. I just kept thinking, you know, wow, I survived an IED blast and all I got was a lot of smoke. You know, they probably brought me back just to check me out, but you know, I'm good. Okay. Not realizing that I was in the hospital. When did you learn the extent of your injuries and what were they? I didn't learn about my injuries to, until I got up and actually looked in the mirror. Wow. What was that like? Undescribable. I didn't know who I was looking at, what I was looking at, what had happened, how they could take <laughs> so much from me, you know, as far as you know, my amputations, my burns and everything like that. Yeah, it's just um I didn't know who I was looking at. I thought I was looking at a one of those funny mirrors you get at you know, go to at the circus or at the fair. And I, I just couldn't believe what had happened to me. And the first thought going through my head was, what am I going to do now? What's going to happen to me? Can't do anything. I'm useless. I had this wonderful job, great opportunities. And now to me, I had nothing. I was, I was nobody. Can you give us a list of those injuries? So the, the injuries I received were 70% burns all over my body, uh, third degree burns. Uh, I had my eyelids replaced, uh, surgically, skin grafts all over my body, had my right arm amputated above the, above the wrist, and all my fingers down to the first knuckle, except for my pinky, which was completely taken off. Um, I had my lower back, my lower back had a hairline fracture, uh, which kind of grew over, over time just for me being laid down in the bed, but it healed itself, and um, drop foot on my my right, my right foot to where, uh, basically what drop foot is, is you can't, the nerves, uh, are dead inside the leg. So I'm not able to lift my foot up. I'm able to push down, but I can't lift my foot up for, so walking is kind of one of those things that I kind of walk with the permanent lip limp now from having drop foot. Do you have your ears? Uh, oh yeah. I don't have any ears. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, they took those off as well. Those were pretty much burned all the way straight through. They tried, I believe they tried to save my ears, but they couldn't with how much the burns had gone through my, the the ear and the muscles. So they went ahead and took those off. Do you know yeah. what your wife felt or thought 
Has she mentioned to you the first time she saw you? Just the process of her having to sign all those medical documents for them to amputate and do surgeries on me. I couldn't fathom on what she was thinking I had to go through signing those because she tried so much to save my extremities and keep everything original that she refused to sign any of the amputation requests from the doctors. So she was trying everything, tried to get them to look at every, every way possible to save whatever they could. And the doctors just told her, you know, it's come to a point where we kind of have to amputate. A lot of the burns have gone down to the bone. Can't save any of the flesh, any of the skin. We have to do skin grafts. So um, I talked to, I talked to her about that a lot. And I tell her all the time, I can, I cannot imagine what you had to go through to sign those papers to have something cut off your significant other. You know, we were 21 years old when I got injured, married six months. Wow. Barely, maybe. And she's having to sign all this medical document saying he's got to have this surgery. He's got to have this cut off. He needs this cut off. He's got to be, he's in a drug induced coma for three months. You're not going to be able to talk to him or see him active for a while until you take him off those meds. And she was devastated. Um, she was in a in a depressed state for three, four months. Even like uh, even after I got out of my drug-induced coma the, the next couple of months, and she struggled. She kind of switched, her brain kind of switched from making sure I was good in the hospital to, all right, we're out now. I have to be on with him 24-7 to make sure he doesn't fall, he doesn't cut himself. He feels heat, things like that. And the thing she told me that she had to go through to take care of me is just mind-boggling. And I, she definitely had uh, a lot to do in my recovery, that's for sure. She's your angel. Yeah. Yeah, she uh, she definitely kept all the bad stuff away when I was injured. She was always arguing with people, telling people to leave me alone. Um, she turned into the, the protector at that point, the bodyguard. If I got tired and didn't want to do anything, uh, she was always there to be like, okay, you know, listen, said he doesn't want to do it, leave him alone. She really got aggressive there for a while. So it was uh, definitely calming to know that she was there to back me up as well. You had about 70 surgeries? 70 plus, something like that. Yeah, for skin grafts and uh, amputations and things like that. Wow. I don't really know how many. You um, stopped counting. <laughs> Yeah, I just stopped. <laughs> it's depressing to keep counting, isn't it? It's it's a lot of numbers. <laughs> Definitely when you keep going. So, are you in pain every day? No, I'm actually no. don't have normal normal pains as any person getting older has. After my rehab uh, at the hospital, you know, I felt fine. You know, I had to obviously I had to get back into routine of doing stuff on my own. Uh, getting my body stronger to do do certain things and uh, that was a task in itself but now I really don't have really I really don't have any pain besides wow lucky just being getting older yeah I hear you there (laughs) I hear you there yeah it's just um I made myself stop taking the pain pills Mm, I hear that a lot a lot of guys at the hospital getting addicted to pain pills because you know, we were in there for some major injuries and a lot of the guys that couldn't handle the pain and I saw these guys firing out of control and it's like no I can't do that I've been through too much already I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole and I think maybe after I want to say four or five months of being the hard on hardcore pain meds I just stopped taking them wow and I just let my body kind of heal itself and get used to the pain and things like that and you know nothing really bothers me obviously you know if I hit myself in a certain spot on my arm or fingers and things like that it hurt but as far as like pain meds uh, it's hard for me to take them now just because I know my body would want to take them more and more do you have phantom pain uh I did for a while uh mostly in my my right arm my amputated right arm um but it was mostly felt like the the muscle was trying to build because I used this arm a lot to carry groceries and stuff like that, just because it was easier to slip on the bags when I grabbed them. Uh, that's where a lot of the phantom pain comes, but it's pretty much gone now. Uh, it comes back every once in a while, but 
it hardly ever pops up. So did you go through a time maybe where you were depressed, feeling sorry for yourself? And how did you get out of it? Because I'm sure you had to have gone through a time. Uh, Yeah, that was uh, maybe two months after I got out of my coma, uh, doing all the rehab and stuff like that, uh, just to get stronger. I kept telling myself, why am I doing this for you? I'm not going to be able to do anything. I'm not going to be able to provide for anybody, especially for my wife, since we were barely newlyweds. No one's going to want to hire me or I can't even, I don't even want, I wouldn't want to hire myself to do work just because I don't have the tools for me anymore. I can't be a Marine and do all that fun stuff that we did in the Marine Corps. What am I going to do now? And I just locked myself away. I go home, draw the shades, make sure it was dark. And I just sat on the couch and watch TV or play video games and never wanted to go out anywhere and do anything. I think I was lying to myself when I when I would tell people that I wasn't in a depressed state for a while, but every time I look back, I'm like, yeah, I was, I was depressed for a while. I kept telling myself that I wasn't worth anything anymore. I wasn't going to be able to provide. I'm not a man anymore. What am I going to do? Um, why would my wife stay with me? She's She needs to leave me and find someone who's more capable to take care of her than I am. I can't be my the protector anymore that I used to be. And it's just on and on and on and doubting myself and uh, just telling myself I need to stay inside and stay away from people. How did you get over that? Um, when I went to my first event with the Wounded Warrior Project, uh, I remembered they had came to my room while I was in and presented me with their famous backpack with you know, all toiletries, uh, a shirt, some shorts, socks, games, things like that, uh, just to make a person stay in the hospital normal and being able to take off that that gown and put on regular clothes uh, changed my whole attitude while I was in the in the hospital still recovering. Um, once I found out they did events for injured veterans to kind of get them out of that state of being stuck in at home and not be able to do anything and knowing that people are out there uh, that want to help um, veterans who are injured. And I was like, oh, why not? Let's try it and see how it goes. Um, and we went to uh, Aspen, Colorado, where there was another uh, organiza- organization out there that they were uh, collaborating with called Bell Veterans out there. And they were, it was a snowboarding trip. They were teaching us, taught us how to snowboard, things like that. And we also uh, were able to go with veterans who were also injured, like myself, um, and talk to them and see how they dealt with everything. And it was a, it was a really nice session. Um, my wife got to talk to, obviously, the other wives who were going through the same kind of trials and tribulations uh, of taking care of, of an injured vet and me as a veteran being the injured, being the injured vet, talking to other vets, going, going through the same kind of you know, problems we were going through about the self-doubt and everything really helped. And, you know, being able to go out in the mountain, learning how to snowboard, which I've never done in my entire life, it just picked up my brain and said, hey, be happy and changed my attitude on the whole whole issue of being injured and that, yes, I can do more and I am uh, worth more after my injury. So I had Jason Redman on my podcast. Do you know who he is, Jason Redman? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I had him on my podcast. And one of the things that he said that he struggled with was, you know, because his face took a lot of bullets. He was ambushed. And so he had a lot of reconstruction surgery and all that. But one of the hardest things for him was he said, walking through an airport and having people stare at his face. And he just wanted to say, do you know how I got this? You know, (laughs) this was, you know, this was not an accident. I I yeah. was defending the country. Do you get used to the stares? Are you okay with it? Does it make you angry or are you just so used to it now it doesn't bother you? Yeah, um right now it's just normal to me. People are going to stare. A lot of them are afraid to ask. Well, because, I was going to ask you know, that. Would you rather have them ask what happened? I would. I'd rather have someone come ask come up to me and ask, "Hey, how'd that happen?" And I don't mind telling my story. Um I love getting my story out there. It just, to me, when I get to tell my story, I think of other veterans and not myself that 
just to get my story out there, it gives information to those who don't know that there are still injured veterans out here trying to uh, get through day by day, getting back into civilian life from the military life as an injured veteran and try to get back to get back to our communities. And a lot of us, uh, a lot of people see us as crazy guys, especially after I get a lot of the guys get hurt. Oh, he's even more unstable. Don't talk to him or he's get on my case and start screaming at me because I asked him about his injuries. And in some cases, that happens. Well, there are veterans out there who don't want to t- be talked to, who um, don't want to conversate. They just want to be left alone. And that's that's the veteran's preference. You know, I can't. You know, there's some days I want to be left alone and I uh, have anybody um, want to talk. But um, I still I still like for people to come up to me and ask me, hey, can you mind if I ask how that happens? You know, and um, it's just to get the story out there and to let people know that we're still going through our struggles as well as injured veterans. From that massive explosion, do you have a TBI at all? No. Wow. And that is amazing how I did not have any traumatic brain injury after that explosion. It boggles my mind. I I, I don't know. I, I couldn't even explain how that happened. The only thing I could think of is my Kevlar that I was wearing took most of the hit and kept my brain still. And the rest of my body was the one that took most of the blast. So um, I I was lucky to come out of that, to come out of these injuries without TBI. I, I'm a very lucky, lucky guy to not have that happen to me. Your family received a special gift, right? You got a house. Did, yes. yes. Tell yeah, me through, when uh, you found out you were going to get a house. Um, Actually, I I didn't know. We were renting an apartment and um, got a call one day from my caseworker at Bamsey. He's like, hey, there's a guy that's going to come meet you. His name's Daniel Vargas. He works with, uh, at that time, he was working with Operation Finally Home out of Houston. And uh, he was going around in the area and just looking for vets to talk to you and uh, give information about his organization. I was like, all right, cool. You know, yeah, I'll meet him. You know, it's another another connection for me to get uh to get to as far as uh, introducing other vets to other vet organizations out there and so we went out and he talked to us about we he invited us to lunch uh met a guy another guy that was with him named carl russell uh he was part of the he was then the president of the west texas home Builders association out of lubbock texas and uh went out to lunch uh told us to meet us at a luncheon they were having for the the Home Builders Association. So we went just to, you know, it was a free lunch. I'm not going to turn down a free lunch. So uh, we went out. Uh, they talked about the organization while we were there. Uh, I should have caught on to what was going on, but uh, I didn't. But they put us in the very front table. I was like, oh, cool. You know, I just thought hey, they want to introduce us as a veteran here, you know, things like that and get a free lunch. Uh, at our lunch, everything they went through the program, and at close to the end, they had uh, Daniel Vargas talk about the organization, and so we went to, uh, we waited there as he talked, and he brought everybody up, and they were like, "Well, got one more surprise for you," and he pointed at me. Uh, we brought you here for a lunch. I hope it was great, but uh, we kind of lied to you. And then that's when they did the whole spill of uh, you have been picked to be the recipient of uh, a home for from Operation Finally Home and West Texas Home Builders Association. And uh, I, I just, me and my wife just lost it. Uh, we had no idea what was going on. And just to hear that uh, we were getting a home and you know, not have to worry about finding a place that we wanted to live, it was with anybody a huge weight off your shoulders. You know, just to see and see all these people come together to build a house for a little old me, you know, that was just doing his job. I couldn't express how many feelings were going through me at that moment to them. And, you know, just um, once, like I said, once I heard it, I, the water roots just started coming and I just couldn't believe it. What a huge burden taken off your shoulders. Yes, especially, with, like I said, with all the thoughts that were going through my mind. Uh, still at that time was, you know, how am I going to pay rent? Where am I going to find a job? Oh, we got to find a house because I'm not going to stay 
at the at the time we were staying with my my parents in their little shed in the back, and I was ready to move out, and you know, I was trying to find something that wasn't too big, but we also wanted a house, and you know it was just it was just adding more stress to me for some reason, and then just to hear that this organization was going to come and build a house for me, um, was, I couldn't express what I was feeling. It just all came out at once. What advice or what would you want to tell veterans that are really struggling right now? What would well, you want to tell them to help them? What I would like to tell those veterans that are struggling is it's going to be a struggle. It's it's going to be hard. With my struggles, I just saw it as I kind of, as training in the Marine Corps, well, a lot of my training. There's going to be struggles. You've got to adapt and overcome some things. You can't do it by yourself. People, other veterans are out there to help you and guide you through your struggles. It's the burden that we have to carry with us going overseas, being in war, being in wartime and stuff like that. I still have my struggles. I uh, still get angry uh, at things that trigger me, but I have a good support system that I know I can go to like, hey man, I'm feeling pages because I'm feeling, uh, I'm not feeling right today or I'll call my Marine brothers and say, hey, man, I'm not feeling right. Can we uh, get together at some point and just hang out? You know, it's it's going to be a struggle, but um, you got to find a support system to help you guide you, to help guide you through, through those struggles in life. Looking back at everything that you went through, now we're not there in Afghanistan, we're not there in Iraq, and we've seen what's happened. How does that make you feel? You you served, you sustained these injuries, and now where we now we see where Iraq and Afghanistan are today without us there. What thoughts do you have on that? No, I really don't have too many thoughts. I mean, it, it's it's sad that it it's happening and what's going down after all the time and effort and blood and sweat that we kind of put into those countries going over there and trying to help them uh, with their situation, but. I mean, to me, that's all we were doing was trying to help them try to live a different different way than what they were living before we uh, went over there uh, to fight the insurgency. And I guess that's, in my opinion, that's just the way they're, they're used to being um, as far as living that way. I mean, that's anybody's going to revert back to uh, what they feel is right. And they felt they feel that. That's how they're, they want to, they want to live. They want to be now that uh, we're not there. It angers me a little to know that, like I said, we went over there, lost friends. We did some crazy things as far as finding insurgents and bringing them to justice and being away from our families for so long and things like that. But, you know, I feel good about what I did when I went over there. Um, other people, other veterans uh, have their issues, and that's you know I can't change their mind on that. Uh, even people that saw what we did have their minds against the government uh, on how they feel. But you know, my I I felt like I did my job. I got hurt while doing my job, but I knew what the job uh, entailed when I did it, and so um, I felt that I served my purpose when I joined and went over there and did my job. Do you deal with PTS? PTS? PTS. I never know what to call it, PTSD or PTS, because I've had some veterans oh, say they like it. they like it to be PTS. Oh. Yeah. Do you um, suffer from that? I do not. So there's like another said, blessing was, in all of this. Yes. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things that I, I still can't think of how I did not suffer for TBI or PTSD. You know, like I tell people, I kind of grew up rough already. Uh, growing up, you know, with, like I said, with street gangs and drugs and things like that here, and things going on when I grew up, is uh, I kind of do those type of bad things. So when there was bad things as far as you know, like seeing dead bodies and seeing people hurt, injured, and things like that, it didn't really bother me. So a lot of people call me a psycho because they're like, "How does that not make you feel any type of way?" Like, oh, it just that's just how I am. It, it just it's just blood and injuries to me. So uh, just seeing, you know, those type of 
horrific that horrific acts and things like that really didn't bother me. So uh like I said, I, I am lucky to not be able to come away from my injuries and uh my deployments with PTSD or TBI. So if we play armchair quarterback, speaking of football, would you still go back and join the military, join the Marines, knowing what happened? Yes. I would still join. I would still go back to do my deployments because I don't think I've I don't think I've met any any other people that I've met that have came gotten closer to than the guys that I served with on those three deployments from two seven Secretary Seven Marines. All those guys were brothers in arms, but were family at heart and blood. And um it, I would definitely go back just to see them again and hang out with them in those types of situations. It's just I, I would never want to give that up. Never. That says a lot. So what are you doing today, Anthony? Like, what do you work? How are you supporting your family? How am I supporting? How are you supporting your family? You are so worried about that. So what are you doing today? Um, well, I, I obviously I get uh, money from the government, from the VA, things like that. And I still try to find a um, part-time job wherever I can. I worked for DHL for a while in the warehouse, um, separating mail. As far as uh, helping veterans and things like that, I became part of the national campaign team for the Window Work Project. And pretty much what that entails is me uh, going out and telling my stories to people, to businesses who are willing to listen, who want to hear my story and the things I've go, that I go through. And uh, I do it for the mere fact, like I said, just to get my story out there to let people know, again, that there are veterans out here struggling with visible and invisible injuries that you know still need help. Even if sometimes they can't get it from the VA, there's still uh, veteran service organizations out there like the Wounded Warrior Project or the Semper Fi Fund or um, Soldier Ride with Wounded Warrior Project um, out there that are willing to help these veterans get through their, their struggles. And a lot of these organizations don't want anything back. They just want to get help to those veterans who are struggling. That's what I'm hoping my story does when I present myself and go out and tell my story with my visible injuries is that, you know, you can't, you can't be too proud to go out and ask for help because I'm doing it and I'm a very proud person. How can the average American help a veteran? Um, The average American can help with vets just by helping vets, really uh, seeking out veterans that need help, um, donating if they want to to some of these veteran service organizations like the Wounded Warrior Project or Semper Fi Fund or any other organization that they see that helps veterans try to get them out of their shell. I have a lot of friends that still encase themselves in their homes and don't want to talk about you know, their PTSD, uh, their stories that they, they, want, uh, they don't think anybody want to understand. And that's because I served with some of those guys been to the same area of battlegrounds and they don't want to talk about it because they think they're weak and just letting veterans know that hey we're here to help and not to judge i think makes the biggest difference in, in the world you'll get a veteran that's angry and you know you just got to keep keep trying to help where can we find you on social media i am on uh facebook obviously which um Kind of private, so okay. <laughs> uh, so you don't usually you... if people send me friend requests. I I try to accept. Okay. Um, okay. I do a lot of my my biggest one right now is Twitch. Um, oh, okay. I I stream for donations for Wounded Warrior Project or the Semper Fi Fund because um, I love playing video games. So I am on um, right now since I've been moving, I haven't been on as much, but here soon, hopefully uh, tomorrow or sometime next week. I'll be back on Twitch streaming again for uh, Wounded Warrior Project Semper Fi Fund uh, to get, you know, to help get donations to those organizations. Um, what do you play? I play any game, really. Nothing really gets away from me. I get a lot of questions to ask. Well, you know, how do you feel when you play you know, games like Call of Duty or first-person shooter games? Like, well, it, the, the noise really doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. It, I love playing those games. 
It kind of reminds me of some of the shooting simulations that we had training or even the range itself being uh being able to shoot down range with my own gun. You know, and it's just fun. It's 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 a video game that everybody loves. Uh I know a couple of the guys that I started with play that game, so it's fun hanging out with them and even just meeting new friends on there. Vets that I've never met being able being able to talk to them through the game, just meeting for the first time, get becoming together and uh on the game and talking and things like that. It's just, it's just awesome. So uh, any game that I I find enjoyable I play. Well Anthony, my last question is what does America mean to you? Uh, America means to me would be the greatest country in the world. There's so much I can do right now. I mean, I'm here talking to you uh, at home, just hanging out. I get to play video games every day when I want to. I can I can do whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. I can be whatever I want. And uh, it's hard to do that in some other countries, specifically the ones I've been to. Uh, they don't have a lot of the luxuries and opportunities that we have here and um, I don't intend to squander those opportunities if I could get the chance Um, it's just a place of opportunity Anthony thank you for sharing your American story with us yeah thank you for letting me tell you my story and for listening Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 